There are certain sounds that embedded in my mind from a particularly young age and have never quite gone away. The way certain voices sound, the hum of my parents' microwave, jingles for businesses that have long since closed. When I try to remember the earliest years of my life, I instinctively conjure up a sonic collage, a sort of sound bed set in my mind, establishing a mood that instantly takes me back to the year 1980-whatever. There are any number of white noise machines available on the market, some of which emit pulses that are supposed to remind listeners of their time in the womb, giving a sense of safety and security. I'm sure those work just fine, but for my money, the surest way to evoke that pre-memory sensation is a combination of the thrum of the engine of an early 80s Chevy conversion van, the rhythmic pattern of cracks in the pavement under the wheels, and the rock-steady low end of Fleetwood Mac's dreams. If you mention dreams to most listeners, the first thoughts that come to mind are probably Stevie Nicks' velvety, half-murmured vocals. There might be a few who mention Lindsey Buckingham's elegant guitar break, and not without good reason. But it's the bass that fortifies my mental sound bed. John McVie's understated, steady, quarter-note pulse blends into the tableau in such a way that it might as well be a mother's heartbeat. It envelops my mind in such a way I'm instantly transported to the bucket seat of my mother's brown van, my chin resting on the enamel of the door and my face against the cool glass as we rode down Interstate 40. It seems like, in my memory, it's always drizzling, the streaks of precipitation snaking their way down the glass. Because thunder, after all, only happens when it rains. Welcome to Curated Content. I'm a child of the 1980s in the most explicit manner. I was born in 1980, the final year of the Carter administration, in a state that was as geographically and culturally removed from the culture centers on the coasts could be and still remain a part of the contiguous United States. I often joke with people that the 1970s didn't actually end in Oklahoma until about 1985 or so, and I mean it more often than they realize. Mine was a youth of Harvest Gold and Avocado Green Appliances, of Dorothy Hamill haircuts for girls and boys, of cars that could possibly still have an 8-track player in the dash. And of course, there was that conversion van. If you told somebody you drove a van in decades earlier, it might have been assumed that you worked as a plumber or were some kind of home repair contractor. At other points, it would have been a more niche vehicle depending on the model the Volkswagen minibus favored by deadheads, perhaps, or the Ford Econoline monsters that lugged a generation of struggling rock bands from college bar to college bar. As the years went on, the custom conversion van went through a substantial public relations overhaul and eventually became respectable, the preferred mode of transportation for the first generation of what would later be called soccer moms, hauling kids from piano lessons to grandparents' house, two Little League tournaments. By the end of the 1980s, 
an estimated 1.5 million conversion vans had been sold in the United States. Turn the calendar back just a few more pages, though, and the custom conversion van's wilder, younger years start to take shape. There was a time when custom vans were less for transporting offspring than for conceiving them. The conversion van, in my estimation, is kind of like your parents. It became safe and utilitarian and hopelessly uncool once you entered the picture and would remain that way for years, if not decades, as you grew up. But there was a time when the conversion van was hip. It was fashionable. It was even considered sexy and cool. Features like quadraphonic sound and television sets were the tip of the iceberg when it came to tricking out these glorious rolling pleasure palaces. It was not unheard of to find custom vans with waterbeds, mood lighting, and plush upholstery from top to bottom. The whole van subculture is probably best summed up by a 1977 exploitation movie called The Van, a movie best remembered for launching the career of a young man named Danny DeVito just a few years before he would star on Taxi. When you can't make it, you can go fun trucking in the foxiest four-wheel moving violation on rubber, the van. Let me show you around. Waterbed. Mirrors. With Bobby, who kind of likes Sally, it's fantastic. The van, rated R. I'd say the van suffers from a lack of subtlety in its depiction of a young man's quest to own a badass conversion van and hook up with the most feathered-haired ladies he could find, but I kind of think that was the point of the movie, and maybe of the conversion van itself in the Carter era. Well, that, and to provide a showcase for Sammy John's fluke-hit Chevy van, which plays over the film's title sequence. And there were others that year. Vansploitation enjoyed a bubble at drive-in theaters, with Supervan also rolling into theaters and featuring, among other things, what can only be described as an epic van jamboree in the middle of Missouri. There's a charmingly 70s futuristic prototype van called Vandora. Lots of footage of things like vans clogging up A&W drive-ins, weird off-brand music that sounds like what happens when Eagles cover bands are asked to write their own songs, and a wet t-shirt contest prominently featuring Charles Bukowski. Yes, that Charles Bukowski. A quick note about Vandora. The van and supervan was originally built by George Barris in 1966, around the same time his talents could be seen on the small screen. The Batmobile used in the 60s Batman series was a Barris creation, as was the car from the Munsters. Years later, he would gift the world with Kit, the talking car from Knight Rider. Custom vans were often rolling monstrosities with airbrushed side panels depicting images of freedom, however one might define it. Proud Native American warriors might ride into a glorious sunrise on one van, while a panorama out of Tolkien could be plastered upon another. Hulking barbarians and chainmail bikini-wearing babes Hulking barbarians and chainmail bikini-wearing babes of the sort painted by Boris Vallejo and Julie Bell were more the rule than the exception. Nuance is not a core value in fun trucking. 
I suspect that if Caligula had walked the earth in 1975, he would have driven a fully loaded Dodge Tradesman with a mural of Dionysius on the side. But, like the old gods of antiquity, the sun seems to have set on the conversion ban. According to industry data, sales dropped by 79% from the early 90s into the 2000s. The sport utility vehicle became the new standard for toting youngsters to piano lessons and making treks to grandma's house. The conversion van, like the cultural artifacts that cropped up around it decades earlier, had lost their luster and driven off into a sunset far less glorious than the ones airbrushed on so many of their sides. Act 2 Turn on a television and watch 15 minutes of a local broadcast, at least long enough to get in a couple of car commercials. Now, think about the adjectives you'd use to describe most of the vehicles shown in these advertisements. Words like elegant, or muscular, or sexy, or sleek, might come to mind. There's probably a word that car makers want you to keep in mind more than any other, though. They want you to think their cars are cool. If a car maker can convince you, their audience, that their product is in some way cool, then reasoning suggests they're more likely to get the sale. We see our cars as extensions of ourselves, and we shun the thought that we might be seen as plain or utilitarian, or, dare we say it, uncool. Consider the Neon. Introduced in 1991 as a concept car by the Chrysler Corporation, the Neon was originally pitched as a budget-friendly sedan aimed at members of Generation X who might be entering the new car market for the first time. It was styled with soft curves that made the car look like a rolling bubble, with a front end that could be described as friendly, for lack of a better word. In fact, Chrysler tried to capitalize on this in the car's original launch, with print ads showcasing the smiling front of a neon and a simple hi appearing above the car. Xers weren't the largest market for the neon, though. In fact, the audience for the neon included a healthy number of retirees, looking for a reliable car in their golden years. My grandmother had a black neon. A classmate had a purple one. I sometimes wonder if they were taught some secret neon handshake as they signed their paperwork. The thing is, the neon story doesn't begin with that 1991 prototype. The neon was developed by engineers who had come to Chrysler after the company purchased American Motors in 1987. True, American was the home of the Jeep, which Chrysler was more than happy to cash in on. But look at the neon again. Maybe squint just a bit, and you might see some of this car's true lineage. What is it about the owners of the AMC Pacer wagon that sets them apart? My Pacer really makes heads turn. Plus, inside this room you'd expect in a bigger car. Smart. Rack and pinion steering, wide track, both on my Pacer wagon. Smart. 
The short hood makes parking a snap. And I love the rear hatch and all the rim in my wide pacer. Smart. AMC had been the home of the Gremlin. And when Wayne and Garth cruise the streets of Aurora, Illinois, in the film Wayne's World, it's in a blue AMC Pacer, a car that could easily be a grandparent to the neon's bubble shape. The joke in Wayne's World was, of course, that a Pacer with flames on the front quarter panel was as close to a cool car as a couple of basement-dwelling goofballs from a Midwestern suburb could get. The funny thing was... This might have been the truest note in the entire film. Was there really that much difference between Mike Myers and Dana Carvey, lip-syncing to Bohemian Rhapsody, and my friends and I, sitting in that purple neon on our way to Nowhere Special, doing the exact same thing? I think of a vanity plate I saw on a car in the summer of 1999, there, in the south parking lot outside of Crossroads Mall in Oklahoma City, I saw a vehicle sporting a large Ozzy Osbourne window decal and a plate that read Black Sabbath. Never had a neon been more metal. Act 3. There's such a thing as trying too hard. I've seen it done, and admittedly been guilty of it more times than I'd really like to admit. Still, there's this undeniable need to try. To reach beyond what feels like a station and grab at your corner of the sky. It's an especially strong pull when you're trying to get out from under a shadow that you've had to live in for over a quarter century. Such is the story of the minivan. During the Van Demonium of the 1970s, designers began tinkering with the idea of something smaller than a full-sized van, but offering some of the more useful features. The ability to comfortably seat more than a couple of passengers was a strong incentive. But was there a market for something in between a station wagon and the splendor of a custom conversion van? In 1983, Dodge took a gamble on the Caravan, the first modern minivan, followed shortly by the 1985 introduction of the Chevy Astro, and a year after that, Ford's Windstar. Within 10 years, most manufacturers in the United States were making some variation of the minivan. The appeal of the minivan may have been in the fact that by nature, they were a little more sensible than their full-sized siblings. A smaller, lighter vehicle meant better gas mileage, and features like dual sliding doors made them a little more practical than, say, a Chevy 20 with double doors on the passenger side. Practicality, though, does not usually carry with it a cachet of hipness. The minivan became a symbol of suburban surrender, and if a full-sized van could be explained away as a rolling luxury, the minivan couldn't help but 
be seen as the vehicular equivalent of a pair of khaki pants and a golf shirt. This was sensible stuff, without need for flash or glamour. An upside of practicality might be longevity. During the ascendancy of the SUV, the minivan continued to hang on as a feasible option for anyone needing to transport more than a couple of people. They were less macho or physically impressive than, say, a Suburban or the Gulf War nostalgic Hummer. But they got the job done, and they survived. The van is dead. Long live the minivan. Manufacturers began installing some of the luxury features once reserved for full-sized vehicles in the minivans, and soon it wasn't all that uncommon to find dual climate zones or entertainment systems as options in a minivan. However, it's tough to project your GMC Safari as a status symbol when your in-headrest LCD screens are blaring SpongeBob SquarePants. Virtually every commercial for minivans touts the notions of reliability, practicality, and utility. Minivan owners don't regularly form clubs, give their vehicles special names, or get flashy murals panned across the side. The minivan became a punchline, the car equivalent of calling somebody a square or mocking them for loving Huey Lewis. The thing is, Minivan owners knew this. They knew what they drove and what it implied. There's a running joke in the crime comedy Get Shorty about how Chili Palmer, a loan shark's enforcer from Miami, spends the duration of the story driving a Dodge Grand Caravan around Los Angeles and, through sheer force of personality, convinces others that it's the most stylish choice of wheels for a man who exudes machismo and toughness. He wills a minivan to coolness. Could this work in real life, let alone on a national scale? One manufacturer decided to try. In 2010, Toyota's advertising agency, Saatchi and Saatchi, tried to subvert this perceived squareness in a campaign for the Sienna minivan. They'd steer into the skid, so to speak, and embrace the car's dorky image. The pitch was simple. Square suburban couple raps about their parenting skills and how fresh their ride is. The catch, of course, is that their vehicle of choice is a Toyota Sienna SE minivan. Their instincts weren't bad. Saatchi hired Jody Hill, a director associated with critically successful comedies like The Foot Fist Way and Danny McBride's HBO series Eastbound and Down to helm the production. Rachel Drummond and Brian Husky, who had experiences at Funny or Die and Upright Citizens Brigade between them, were cast as the ad's leads. 
The result was a heavily stylized black and white spot that evoked the video for Snoop Dogg's Drop It Like It's Hot. The clip generated the same kind of goodwill that a well-placed SNL short might, and it went viral, for better or for worse, spawning a wave of rapping parent music videos on YouTube. Okay, most of those videos are for the worse. But even as otherwise milk toasts were beginning to talk about their swagger wagons, it didn't do much to imbue the vehicle itself with much in the way of coolness. A swagger wagon was still sensible, after all, and no amount of ironic winking was going to change the fact that its principal use was of a practical nature. Four years later, Toyota tried to keep the momentum going, however awkward it might have been, by releasing another video, this one done in a more maximalist style made by the same production outfit that was responsible for Macklemore's thrift shop video, and featuring a cameo by Buster Rhymes. It was not very well received. Adweek distilled the difference between the two commercials to this. The original had a certain acknowledgement that parents are for the most part supporting cast members in their children's lives. The sequel, with its cute rapping kids and scenes of an entire neighborhood doing their best impression of Soldier Boy, plays out like something filmed for the Disney Channel. The ad came under fire for a number of reasons, including charges of cultural appropriation and a number of worst commercial ever comments in high-profile publications. What could have bumped the modest minivan up a couple of notches in coolness had instead sunk it back down to its former station. Not even the man who would inspire Broadway's Hercules Mulligan could save it. It's 2017. Toyota still bills the Sienna as the one and only swagger wagon on the company's official site, though there's nothing more beyond a tagline to suggest that the company will be returning to the well with this campaign anytime soon. Lightning strikes, maybe once, maybe twice, but never in the same place, after all. Curated content is recorded in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the shadow of the Golden Driller. Today's episode was written, produced, recorded, and edited by Michael Ross, whom you're listening to now. He also performed our interstitial music, with the exception of music used in the archival clips. Find new episodes of curated content every Monday at iTunes, Stitcher, 
and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us. Your feedback is valuable, and your ratings help others find us. Visit our website at modernsuburbanite.com slash modsub, where you will find our car... Visit our website at modernsuburbanite.com slash modsub, where you will find archived shows, show notes, and information about other projects. Connect with curated content on Twitter, where we are at content show, or reach us through email. Our address is curatedc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Whether you're curious about sponsorship opportunities, have questions about the show, or just want to let us know what you think. Join us next time for more dives into half-remembered material and the unexpected threads running through our brains in coding. This concludes our visit to the mixed-up files deep in the memory banks. Be well and stay curious.